Good morning, church. It's good to see you here uh, this morning. Uh, If you are new here, if this is your first time and we haven't met, please introduce yourself to me if if you would as a favor to me. I'd love to meet you and uh, get to get to know you and to to bring you up to speed. We've been in a in a series on the book of Joshua, and this morning is our last message in the book of Joshua. We're looking at Joshua chapter 24, and and one of the things that, some of the things I've been telling you about uh, throughout this series is that Joshua is an intense book, right? It's intense because there are these amazing adventures and exploits, and at times it's often disturbing as well, and we have to wrestle with it. And I got to tell you that as I've been preparing for these messages in Joshua, um, you know, I, I want to always make sure that, that, uh, that, I'm, that I never just preach to you all, but that I preach to myself, that I see my need for the good news. I need to see my need for God's grace and for, for his redemption. And, and uh, we're all in the same boat together. This book has been especially encouraging to me during this particular series. It's been very timely uh, for me. I've needed it. One of the things that we see in the book of Joshua, what one commentator calls a pervasive optimism. We see, the, we see God's people get into a mess and, and uh, God makes a promise to deliver them and then he keeps his promise and then they get into another mess, another, another tight spot and God makes a promise and he keeps his promise. And outside of the story, it's real easy for us to look at those people and say, what a bunch of idiots. How come they can't just see that God is faithful? And yet we forget that all the time. And I think that if someone were to write our story about our relationship with God and how we trust him, someone in the future would look back at us and say, what a bunch of idiots. You know, why don't they trust God? And uh, so it's really easy for us to identify with what's going on here. Now, the title of our last message here um, is Renewing Faith. Specifically, uh, renewing our relationship with God. In our scripture passage for this morning, this is exactly what we see. God's people are renewing their relationship with him. It's called a covenant renewal service. You know, all of our important relationships, I mean, think of the important relationships in your life, okay? All of our important relationships need ongoing renewal. I met my wife, Shannon, when I was 14 years old. 14! We got together when I was 15 years old. So I've known her for over 31 years. Now, there were a few years we weren't together. Shannon moved away to be a college student, and I stayed here in San Diego to be an idiot. I went off the deep end. I lived like a fool, right? And when Shan got home, God used Shannon to uh, bring me to, to God and show me God. And, and, and uh, you know, we got back together and Jesus changed my life. And then on Friday, June 24th, 1994, we got married. 
We've, married, we've been married for 23 years, 4 months, and 26 days. It's a long time, right? That's 8,549 days. In the first service, they're like, that's cute. You guys are a bunch of babies. <laughs> Bob uh, was telling me that Bob Hogan said that he was, they've been married 56 years. So over the years, Shannon and I have learned how important it is to regularly renew our relationship, to celebrate anniversaries, date nights, flowers, lots of time just being together, prayer, church, serving each other, confessing one another, hammering out difficulties together. And sometimes we have long seasons of of difficulties. We cry together, we laugh together, and it all goes to an ongoing renewal of our relationship. So... Why is it that our important relationships need ongoing renewal? Well, first of all, we forget. We all are forgetful people. We forget our story and and the amazing ways that that God has has brought us together. And we, we just kind of lose perspective. And not just with our spouses, but with friends and family. We forget the, the purpose of, of our relationship. We, we forget the, the promises that, that we make to each other. And then secondly, if we can all be honest with ourselves, we're all selfish. If we're brutally honest with ourselves, we realize we're all selfish. We're selfish people. And without renewal, what we tend to focus on is what's in it for me, Right? We focus on, on, on our needs and the other person's responsibility instead of focusing on the other person's responsibility or the other person's needs and focusing on our responsibility. And then on top of that, life just keeps throwing us curveballs, right? Circumstances change. They're constantly changing. So we need to renew our relationship in order to live out our commitment to each other in new ways. All of our important relationships need renewal. Especially, and most importantly, our relationship with God. Amen? Now, if you're a new Christian, you're probably still in the honeymoon phase. And you think that honeymoon phase will never end. But it, it's not one continuous honeymoon, is it? So we need to constantly renew our relationship with God. Maybe you've been a Christian for some time now, and, and, and maybe like we read in, in Revelation, uh, you've forgotten your first love. God, God seems distant You remember back to a time when your relationship uh, with God used to be vibrant and you were on fire and your heart was filled with joy and love and and passion for God and praise, right? But now it feels like it's gone and you're just bored or apathetic or despondent. And maybe that's been gone for for a while now and and you, you want it back, but you just don't know how to get it back. Anybody been there? Well, I think this message can help. And if you're not a Christian, but you're interested in knowing God and and what it means to have a relationship with God, this message will show you how to know him and begin that relationship for the first time. And then, you know what I've also noticed? There are some people 
who say, you know, I've been a Christian my whole life, but I don't get all this talk about close relationship with God. It's just about obeying what he commands us to do, and that's it. If that's you, I can't tell you how much you're missing out. And I think my hope is that this message will help. Our story today is found in Joshua chapter 24, and I see four things involved here in renewing our relationship with God. And the first one is this. Remember. Remember what God has done. Now, as I read this first section of Joshua chapter 24, I want you to notice, I want you to see the emphasis here on what God has done in history for his people. God says stuff like, like, I took, I gave, I assigned, I sent, I afflicted, okay? Keep that in mind as we go through this. Beginning in verse 1. It says this. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all of the people, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave him Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. And then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. For the first time, he says, you. What's happening here, up to this point, He's been talking about their ancestors, but now he begins to weave you into them. God weaves your story into his story. And then now listen how it goes back and forth between them and you. Verse 6. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them, them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them, and you saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you, and you took possession of their land, verse 11. Then you crossed the Jordan, came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Gigashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. That's a lot of ites. <laughs> but I gave them into your hands. And then he says, I sent the hornet ahead of you. What in the world is the hornet? I have no idea. And the commentators can't agree. But one thing that everybody agrees on is that it's describing the fear that God put into the hearts of their enemies that want to destroy them. And the point is, is that God is the one who drove out their enemies. So I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it. 
with your own sword and bow. So I gave you the land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. In renewing your relationship with God, remember what God has done for his people. That right there is the starting point. The the faithfulness of God to his people throughout history. And you are part of his people. Now, I don't know about you, but often when when my heart grows cold toward God, I, I start to think this way. I need to renew my relationship with God. I need to do this and I need to do that. It's all about me doing things for God. But that is not the starting point. It's not about you doing things for God. The starting point is remembering what God has done throughout history for his people. History is his story. History is his story of his faithfulness. And when you remember his story of his faithfulness, his story is a story of grace. You know, when you look back all throughout the Bible, we see, you know, God came to to Abraham, not when Abraham was seeking God, but when Abraham was worshiping other gods. And God included Abraham's story into his story out of sheer grace. And then God came to his people in Egypt when they were worshiping idols. And then God included their story into his story by sheer grace. And then God provided for his people in the desert, even though they kept grumbling and complaining against him. And he gave them the promised land and and homes they did not build and did not deserve. And he included their story into his story by grace. But there's more. We all need to remember what God has done in your life. We have to remember what God has done in your life. It's it's important to remember what God has done in the past, but but on top of that, it's important for us to remember what he's he's done for us in our lives. How he's included, he has in fact included your story into his story. This morning, I'm pretty tired. I'm pretty, it was a rough week and then... um, you know, yesterday, a group of seven of us went down to, to TJ to visit my, my friends, uh, Jason and Diane. Jason and Diane bought a house in, in TJ, and uh, they're bringing in women to help them escape prostitution, addiction, and abandonment. And uh, we met the, the women there. Uh, they've housed up to 15. Uh, currently, they have six, I think. Women young as, as young as 13 and 17 years old, and women who are in their 60s. Diane and, and Jason uh, told us how uh, God called them to begin this home for women and the amazing ways God provided. The amazing way God provided everything that they needed. They are totally dependent upon God's provision. And then they told us the different stories of of how God brought them exactly what they needed when they needed it. We toured the neighborhood and they they showed us all the 
just the, the, the need throughout the, the neighborhood and, and what's going on in the lives of people there and, and uh, just the, the, the challenges and, and the, the darkness. Um, they showed us around the house and how it's being used and, and introduced us to the women who are getting help. At the end of the night, um, there was one woman who was asked to give our, our testimony, and so everybody kind of gathered in one of the rooms that they call the chapel, and um, she shared her testimony about how God's grace radically, radically changed her life. Her story includes being enslaved to addiction and doing anything and everything to feed uh, that addiction. And she lost her children and she ended up living on the streets totally alone. Her story was filled with darkness and loneliness. It seemed and looked impossible. But God. But God intervened. And she told us how God intervened. God sought her out. God brought her in from the streets. And God used Jason, Diane, and their team to do that. And and she told us how her story completely and totally, radically changed. She came to know that Jesus lived for her and died for her. And the Holy Spirit made God real to her as her loving Heavenly Father. And she was not alone anymore. God was with her. She is no longer alone in her story. God was sent to her story now. And we saw that God, in a very real way, we saw God weaved her story into the stories of everyone else. After we were only planning on, on one testimony, but after she gave her testimony, one of the other women said you know, that she wanted to share her th- her testimony of, of God's grace in her life. And then after she was done, another woman wanted to share her story and God's grace in, in her life. And then one of the directors gave his story and shared God's grace in, in his life. And each story of God's grace was just amazingly beautiful in and of its own. But then to see all of the others kind of woven in together, and then you get a sense like your life is woven in together with their stories and the rest of the women and the directors, man, that is a powerful picture of what God is, is up to, showing off the beauty of God's redemption for his people, that they were all part of God's great story. And I'm telling you, the same is true for you. Whatever it is that you're going through right now, God weaves your story into his story. And it's this beautiful picture of redemption. Sometimes your own life story, maybe you haven't experienced this yet, but you will. Sometimes your own life story is filled with what seems to be pointless misery and heartache. And life just gets too heavy. It, it, it feels crushing. But there is something that changes your heart and your mind in the midst of it all. It's seeing that God has and continues to weave your life story, the good, the bad, and the ugly, into his beautiful story of redemption. 
when, when you see that, when you get a sense for that, what happens is that the dread lifts and you regain your courage. Life is still hard, but it doesn't crush you anymore. You see that, that you are included in, in the beautiful picture of God's redemption of, of his people. Have you seen that? And so second, in light of remembering what God has done by his grace, in, in light of that, you make a radical commitment to God. In other words, stay the course. Stay the course in, in your story. Persevere. It's not pointless. God redeems it all. And he uses it all, the good, bad, and the ugly. It's part of his glorious story. Verse 15. It says, Now, fear the Lord. You need to know in the Bible when it says fear the Lord, it's used interchangeably with trust and obey and love and respect. It sets you free from all other fears. Fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness, it says. Throw away the gods of your forefathers, worship beyond the river, and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of the forefathers served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. In verse 16, the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord, to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from the land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites, who lived in the land. We, too, will serve the Lord because he is our God. Now, in response to what God has done, God calls us to a radical commitment. The truth is, we only have two options. Either we serve God or we serve the gods of our culture. You know, we are hardwired to serve something, to serve someone. If we choose not to serve uh, God, we will serve something or someone else. We'll serve the God of, of work because we have to succeed. We'll serve the God of comfort because we have to feel good. We'll serve the God of possessions because we need security or we want to live the good life. We'll serve the God of popularity because we want to know that, that we are loved. We'll serve the God of beauty because we don't want to believe that we're growing old and we're all going to die one day. God calls us to a radical commitment. He says, serve him with all faithfulness. Jesus himself says, you cannot serve two masters. You will either love one and hate the other, or you will cling uh, to one and despise the other. And, and notice, it's, it's not only this radical com commitment is not only radical, it's also a logical commitment. Joshua says, you'll serve God or the idols of the surrounding culture. And the people say, how in the world could we do that? After all, 
that God has done for us. That wouldn't make any sense at all for us to do that. All, all that we have and all that we are because of him, therefore, we will serve the Lord. It's the only logical response. So what does this radical commitment to God look like? First and foremost, you make it your central purpose in life. You ever feel like you're just torn apart in too many directions? Yeah. Well, the starting point is right here. Put at the center of your life the purpose of serving God first and foremost, primarily. The central purpose then becomes your decision making criteria. It, it, it becomes the, the lens through which you evaluate all of your choices. It, I mean, it's, it, it determines the decisions you make about career or who you marry or your job opportunities or where you live or how you spend your money or how you spend your, your time. It's all viewed through the central purpose to serve the Lord. That means that you just might turn down a job with a $100,000 salary and take the job with a $30,000 salary if you think that it puts you in a better position to serve the Lord. Money is not your central like criterion for, for the decision that you make. Serving God is. And that's, that's, that's the lens through which you think about all your decisions. This central purpose to serve the Lord with all faithfulness means that every single day, every day, you commit yourself to serving God right where he has you right now. God might call you somewhere else, but you don't wait for that. You, every single day, you commit yourself to serving God right where he has you right now. There are a lot of things that that you might not be able to change because of previous decisions that you made or maybe other people have made, but know this, that God weaves it all into his story. And he wants you to serve him where he has you right now today, in that marriage on the rocks, in that job that, that you hate, in that ministry that no one sees or appreciates, in the sickness, in the pain. It's all part of God's great story. So because of what God has done for you by his grace, the only logical thing to do is to make a radical commitment to God. And then in light of all, the, all that, my, my third point of the four that I have, be honest. Let's be honest about our unfaithfulness. Verse 19. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. That's his response. They say, we will serve the Lord. He's like, you can't do that. God is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they said. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you 
and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. Now there are a few problems here, right? At least it come up in my mind. One of the major ones is, this totally seems to contradict what we heard about God's grace, right? I mean, it sounds like uh, it all depends on us serving him perfectly. But God's like, you know what? If you don't serve me faithfully, I will not forgive you, and I will bring disaster upon you. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. People made a commitment to God, but they also served the gods of their surrounding culture. And so God brought other nations to drive Israel out of the promised land and take them into bondage. How in the world do we reconcile that with the beginning of this text where, where God is emphasizing his grace? I'll tell you in a second. But first, here's the, here's the point. We need to be humbly honest about our unfaithfulness. Maybe you're sitting there and you think, what are you talking about? If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask God to show you where you've been unfaithful. And if you can't see it, ask someone close to you that you trust. Can you show me? I don't see it, but I know there's something. That's a humble posture. It sets you up for desiring God and his grace. people in our text were not honest about their unfaithfulness. They said, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said, you can't serve the Lord. And they said, oh yes, we can. And Joshua said, then throw away the foreign gods that are among you. They were already among them. The people already, already began to buy into the gods of the surrounding culture. And Joshua calls them to throw them away. And what is their response? They say, we will serve the Lord. In other words, don't worry about that. We'll serve the Lord. We can keep our idols. It's cool. We'll serve the Lord. They say nothing about throwing away their, their idols. They're not being honest with God about their unfaithfulness. They don't repent of their idolatry. They are self-deceived. I'm telling you. We must be humble in our radical commitment to God. Yes, it is logical in light of what he's done for us, all that he's done for us by his glorious grace, and we should do it. But we need to be aware of our own spiritual blindness. We need to humbly confess that we all really have bought into the gods of our surrounding culture. Maybe you don't know what, what, you, what, what God you bought. Some of you absolutely do know. And God calls us to humbly confess that. Don't be in denial about it. Don't just sweep it under the rug. 
God's kindness brings us to repentance. God's grace enables us to bring things into the light, not for shame, but for redemption and, 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 and to be made whole and for healing. We constantly bring other things to the center of our lives. Then we give our lives to that. They can even be good things. You know, it's possible uh, for, for pastors to make church their idol. The thing where they, they get their, their, their significance and security and, and respect or whatever. All pastors struggle with that, including me. You know, it's possible to make your family into an idol. It happens. That's like a great American value right there. We put our family first. And then maybe God. If there's time. Good things can become an idol. But when we bring those things into the center of our lives and then we live for them and we make decisions based on them, they begin to control us and tear us apart. It's idolatry. We all need to humbly confess that we all struggle. I struggle with this personally. So let's all be humble and confess it. And then lastly, in light of our unfaithfulness to God, trust in the faithful covenant keeper. Verse 25. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. And then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us, and it will witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Our relationship with God is based on a covenant. Covenant is basically an agreement made with vows or promises. And verse 25 says, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And I have learned that a more direct translation for that is, Joshua cut a covenant. And what that refers to is the practice in that day when, when covenants were made, animals were cut into pieces, and then one or both parties of the covenant walked through the pieces. You know why? They were making a self-maledictory oath. A self-maledictory oath? What in the world is that? Remember when we were kids and we say, I promise, cross my heart, Hope to die, and what? Stick a needle in my eye. You know, when we're kids, we say it like nothing. No big, no big deal. Bob, in the first service, helped me understand this in a whole new way. He has a problem with his eyesight, and treatment in one of the eyes is he has to go into the doctor and they stick a needle in his eye. They do some kind of an injection into his eye. Every two months, he's done it 30 times. So <laughs> that's pretty gnarly, right? Made me think of that uh, 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 a little bit more realistically. That's the self-maledictory oath. 
and that's what happens here. The people promised, we will serve the Lord. And then they walked through the slaughtered animals, and in so doing, they were saying, if we don't serve the Lord with all faithfulness, may we be like these animals that were torn limb from limb. May we be cut off from God and his promised land. Now, does that not sound like it all depends on them? How in the world do we reconcile that with God's grace? Well, there was another time when God cut a covenant with his people in Genesis chapter 15. We studied this a couple years ago. When God originally promised Abraham to give him the promised land. And, and Abraham said, God, how can I know that you will keep your promise? And God, uh, and, and God told Abraham, go get some animals. And Abraham cut up the, the animals and laid the pieces on the ground. But this time, Abraham did not walk through the animals. This time, God passes through the animals. And when God passes through the animals, what are you saying was, if I don't, God was saying, if I do not keep my promise to you, Abraham, and to your spiritual descendants, then may I be ripped limb from limb like these animals. What is God doing with these two different covenants? What God is doing is he is showing us two different ways of salvation. Two different ways to receive the promised land, which stands for entering into a relationship with God and, and life with him as it was meant to be. One way totally depends on us. The other way totally depends on God. One way is, is through perfect obedience to the law. The other is, is faith, through faith in God's promise. One way is covenant of works. The other way is a covenant of grace. And in Joshua 24, the people said, we will do it ourselves. They were in denial, big time. The purpose of this covenant of law, um, the covenant of works, the purpose of that was to make us realize we can't do it ourselves. We cannot. One of the purposes of the law is to drive us to Christ. And to receive his grace. To drive us to the faithful covenant keeper. And there was another covenant. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and then he broke it. And he gave it to his followers saying, this is my body given for you. And then he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sin." Jesus is saying, I've come to fulfill those covenants. And he served God with all faithfulness, all of his life, perfectly. And you know what? He did it for us. And then he went to the cross and took our sin. And he was torn limb from limb so that we would receive grace and be forgiven. And at the moment that you put your trust in the faithful covenant keeper, his death becomes your death. And his perfect life becomes your life. And it's all a gift of God's grace. And how do we respond to this grace? What is the only logical, rational response to that grace? We make a radical commitment to serve him no matter what. 
not out of what we're going to get because we already have it all in Christ. He is enough. If we have nothing else but we have Jesus, we have more than enough. So serving him radically is out of a desire to say thank you. It's out of a sense of loyalty. You know, uh, yesterday I was talking to one of the directors. Her name is Myra. She lives there with her husband, Chon, and her, um, I believe they have four daughters. I think three of them were there. One was out. And I was telling them how encouraged I, I was to see them serving uh, these women. And, you know, they're living in that house, in that neighborhood. And, you know, it's It's stressful. It's stressful. They have hearts just filled with joy. And it's amazing. And so I was, I was thanking them for that because that is quite a sacrifice. And, and you know what she, she told me? She said, I don't, I, just, I don't really view it as, maybe it is, but I don't really view it as a sacrifice, she said. I don't, I don't view it as a sacrifice for me to live down here and for our, our marriage to uh, have its challenges because of the situation uh, that, that we're in I, and, and for my kids to, to live in this, this, this neighborhood. I, 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 don't, I don't really feel like it's a, a sacrifice because Jesus <laughs> sacrificed everything already. So she was like, it just makes sense. This is, this is what he did. This, this is just what I do. It was a natural, rational, logical response to God's grace. And she was excited and happy and fulfilled to do it. That's a big difference in motivation between, oh, I better do this or not do that, or God's going to pow, and maybe you won't love me anymore or bless me anymore. No, Jesus already made the sacrifice out of grace, regardless of what we've done. Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. For we're convinced that one died for all so that we might not live for ourselves, but for him who dies for us and rose again. We're about to participate in the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper is a covenant renewal service. When we partake in the bread and the cup, we remember what God has done in history, but especially what God has done for you in your life. And then we are expressing our radical dependence upon God for his grace and for his forgiveness and, and our need to be loyal to him and to glorify him. And we're expressing a radical commitment to him. And when we participate this, we are being honest about our, un, our own unfaithfulness. And it's a confession that, that we have chased other idols and, and when we participate in this thoughtfully we humbly repent of our idols that we brought in from the surrounding cultures and then we will trust in the faithful covenant keeper because of who he is and what he has done by his grace and grace alone. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your, for your glorious grace.
God, I, I pray that if uh, we are, if we feel like the good news is old news right now, if we're bored right now, if we're apathetic right now, if our attitude is tell me something I haven't heard before, oh God, please give us eyes to see our need for you. We are desperate without you. Our life is meaningless without you. It makes no sense to not live for you. Forgive us for all the things that we put, make central to our lives instead of you. Help us to always pray, God, how would you have me live in response to your grace? God, help us to to, uh, search the scriptures uh, for that, but help us to see when we do your loyalty and love and grace for us. God, I pray that you'd guard our minds against being distracted in this moment and that you would, by your Holy Spirit, that, that you would grab our attention, that you would graciously give us a diagnosis by shining a, a, a much-needed light on our, on our unfaithfulness not to, not to shame us, but to drive us to Christ. To set us free from shame. God, some people here are just, just tired. And maybe they've been so tired for so long, they're beginning to feel hopeless. God, would you please encourage them this morning? That you are a God who makes promises and keeps them. That you promise that you are enough. You promise to weave our, our, our life stories, the good, bad, and the ugly, into your story of redemptive history. Help us to realize that our relationship with you is not just between you and God, but between us as a people, your people, and you. God, I pray that by the power of your gospel through the Holy Spirit, that you would enable us to make a radical commitment to you. May we become greatly dissatisfied and discontent with any other life other than serving you and glorifying you and obeying you, being loyal to you out of just deep gratitude for who you are and what you've done for us. We pray these things in your name.